Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series. We're working through the book of Acts. We've come to part 4, which will be covering chapters 3, 4, and 5 in the book of Acts. We just began uh, looking at the first 10 verses in chapter 3 last time. And of course, in chapter 2 we had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We had the birth of the church. We saw many amazing things already happening in chapter 2. 3,000 souls were added to the church in one day as a result of Peter's anointed preaching. We'll see him again preaching here in chapter 3. And again, we're going to see how God uses the miraculous to create a platform for the preaching of the good news of the gospel. And in the first ten verses, we saw the well-known story of the lame beggar that was healed at the gate of the temple. And just a few quick things before we move further along. And again, if you're following in the notes, uh, chapter 3, which is the beginning of part 4, begins page 37 in the notes. But just a couple of final comments. Uh, This beggar, we will learn in chapter 4, was over 40 years old. And he had been like that from birth. So this is a long time this man has been in this condition. Um, We can only speculate, but I would assume that after so many years, he had pretty much resigned himself to spending the rest of his days there at the gate to the temple, begging for alms every day without any hope of walking or doing anything else with his life. And how suddenly God can come upon our situation and instantaneously change everything. And that gives me hope that maybe I'm in a situation right now that I don't much care for, and maybe I've been in it for many years, but God can just come along and go, and breathe upon the situation, and it changes instantly. Our whole life can change in one single day. And the other thing I want to reiterate here is, very often we, like this beggar, we think we need something. But what we think we need is not really what we need. And very often we're ignorant of what is right there in front of our face that is the answer to our need. Let me explain. He was there begging for money. And even when Peter and John passed by him, all he wanted from Peter and John was money. It says, when he saw Peter and John, he asked them for money. But Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Peter didn't have what this man wanted, but Peter had what the man needed. Peter had the power of God. 
He had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He had the power to heal this man in Jesus' name. And how often we go through life searching for what we think we need, but we're missing what it is that we truly need. And we need to ask God to help us to even understand what is it that I need. Maybe somebody's listening at night thinking, I need more money, when in fact, that's not what you need. Maybe it's something else you or I need. And God is in the business of supplying our needs. That's why sometimes James says, we're asking for the wrong things in prayer. We ask amiss. Better to pray, Lord, what is your will for my life? What is it that I really and truly need? So, the man was instantly healed, and he was well known by everybody, and so his healing immediately created quite a stir. And we'll see in the next chapter, it creates such a stir that it lands Peter and John in prison. But the fact is, the news spread very rapidly that, and I'm quoting, an outstanding miracle had taken place. It was an instantaneous, complete healing. And everybody knew this was a miracle. And so we have a a big stir that is now taking place. God did that in chapter 2 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all of the different languages that were being spoken. It gathered a huge crowd there in Jerusalem. And again, we read here in Acts 3.10 that they were filled with amazement at what had just happened to this man. Filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now, we want to continue on from Acts 3.11, I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, Acts 3.11, down to verse 26. If you are following in the outline notes, this brings us up to page 40, and all of these notes are available at our website, new-life-ministries.org. Here we go, Acts 3, from 11 to 26. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And, sorry for interrupting, but before I go any further, let me also mention the very first thing this beggar did after he was healed was run into the temple. Not away from it, He ran into the temple. And we pointed out last time that, sadly, many people, when they come to Jesus with a need, maybe they need a healing, maybe they have a loved one that needs deliverance or healing, or maybe they need a job or some other physical need met. Sadly, I've seen this so many times over the years, they come, they want prayer, We pray, and God answers them. They're healed, their child is delivered, God gives them a new job, and we never see them again. 
They run away. And just like the story that Jesus gave of the ten lepers, like the nine who run away with their healing and don't even come back to give thanks, praise, and glory to God, I don't know how that breaks down. Nine out of ten, that's not a very good average, but only one of the ten actually came back. And it's fascinating to see that what this man did with his healing was run into the temple. He didn't run away with his newfound freedom and his new legs. He ran into the, to the temple And we can already see something else interesting in the verse I just read. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, not only did he go into the temple with them, he stayed right by their side. He wanted to be with Peter and with John. All right, verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murder be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago, through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people, You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So as we mentioned, here again, God uses a miracle to get people's attention. 
He uses a miracle to stir up excitement, interest. The people came running, we read in verse 11, astonished to find out what this was that had just happened. Peter, very wisely, uses the opportunity as a platform for him to again preach the gospel to the Jews gathered there. And I want you to follow the the sermon as it unfolds here. In verse 12, Peter saw this. He said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Peter immediately turns the attention away from himself, away from John, and points them right back to God and to Jesus Christ. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had worked this miracle? You know, Peter is a very interesting character. And he's somebody that you and I need to study very carefully because as the book of James says about another great man of God, Elijah, he's a he's a man of like passions, just like us. He's no different than any of us. Um, he's just a human being. And he had all the same weaknesses, all the same human follies that you and I have. And God had to deal with Peter in a very, very strong way. And you'll remember in the Gospel of Matthew, um, the exchange between Jesus and Peter on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he says directly to Peter, the keys of the kingdom have been given to you. Jesus didn't say that to anyone else. He only said that to Peter. Meaning that God knew what he was going to do with Peter. He had great plans for Peter. He was going to use him in a mighty way, and he already has on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls came to salvation through Peter's first sermon. And we all know how quickly our heads can swell up when we do a good deed or when God uses us. And God had to deal very severely with Peter to break him, to humble him, to crush the pride in his life, so that when God did use him, as he did here in Acts chapter 3, it wouldn't go to his head. And this really blesses me to see how quickly Peter deflects any attention from himself right back onto Jesus Christ. He could have easily thought to himself, well, yeah, of course this man is healed because look at me, how godly I am or how holy I am. I'm, I'm one of the chosen twelve. No wonder he was healed. But 
These words mean a lot. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And here's something you and I need to remember all the days of our life here on earth. If God does anything through us, it's not because of us, it's in spite of us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we have treasure in jars of clay. These bodies of our of ours are just like clay pots. There's nothing good in the clay, it's what's inside the pot. It's the power and the glory of God that's inside of us. That treasure is the Holy Spirit. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And Peter was very, very careful to never take any glory for himself. And for good reason. This is the same man that not too many days prior had denied that he ever knew Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times in one night. I don't know the man. What an amazing thing. I don't know who this Jesus is. Never had any contact with him. That's the same Peter. And he was broken. He wept bitterly that night when he realized what had happened in his life. You know, there's an elderly founder of a famous Bible school who is reported to have given uh, a message at the graduation of his young seminarians. Here was his message in a nutshell. I have one desire that each one of you, when you leave this Bible school, you would be failures. <laughs> Not exactly the kind of commencement address you would expect to hear at a graduation. But his message was, I'm praying for each one of you that when you launch out from this school, every one of you would be a complete and an utter failure. He went on to explain, failure will do something in your spirit that success will never do. Many a great man or woman has been ruined by their own success because of the pride and the arrogance that can easily result when we start to have big success, we start to prosper, and many a minister has fallen into utter disgrace, not because of failure, but because of success. Oh, look at how big my megachurch is. It must be, because, must be because of how holy I am, or how spiritual I am, or how clever I am, or how anointed I am. Be careful. Pride always precedes the fall. And God cannot use for very long any of us if we continue promoting ourselves. I'm going to say that again. Be very careful about <clears throat> self-promotion. It's the road to destruction. And God cannot use us for very long if we're 
drawing attention to ourselves. Oh, look at what I just did. Look at how anointed I am. Look at how beautifully I sing or whatever. No flesh, the Bible says, can glory in his presence. God can use anybody or anything. The Bible is very clear. God can speak through a donkey. So what if he gives a prophecy or a message through me, through you or me? He can talk through a donkey. The Bible says in the Psalms, he lifts the poor and the needy beggars out of the dunghill and sets them on his throne. We must never forget where we came from. We came from the dunghill. And if we think God did a miracle or used us in some amazing way, and we think it's because of us, because of how holy we are, or how much we prayed, or how well we know the Bible, be careful. We better think it through carefully, because God often does great things in spite of us, not because of us. Peter, I think, had learned that lesson very well. And that's why he says, why are you looking at us? This has nothing to do with our own power or godliness. It's not how spiritual we are. It's the name of Jesus Christ that has brought this healing. And so, in verses 13 to 16, he immediately focuses their attention back on Christ, back on his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And similar to his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he's very, very bold. And he turns right to these Jews, and he blames them for rejecting, disowning, and murdering God's only Son. Listen to these words again. Man, this is strong medicine. In verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Okay, wonderful. But he goes on, You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had already decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer, Barabbas, be released to you. You killed the author of life. Whew! Man! Peter, be careful, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And he did. He got himself in a heap of trouble, talking like that. But these apostles were very, very bold in their preaching. You disowned him, you handed him over, you killed him. Listen to the irony in these words. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and here it is again, we are witnesses of this. We are witnesses of his resurrection. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name, not our godliness, not our power, not our spirituality. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this 
complete healing. Listen to those words. Complete healing to him. As you can all see. So he reminds these Jews, they rejected God's Messiah. They were personally responsible for yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And so Peter says, you're guilty of killing the author of life. Nevertheless, you acted in the ignorance, the next verse will teach us, but God used all of this to fulfill his predetermined plan, which was to raise up his son, glorify him, and exalt him. Now, in verse 17, Peter seems to soften his tone a little bit after reminding them that they killed the author of life. He says, now brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. You acted in ignorance. What did Jesus pray on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Very often people are just being carried along by the devil. They're doing the devil's will without even realizing what they're doing. They've been blinded by the God of this age, and they don't even know what they're doing. Now, be careful here. Because even sins of ignorance in the Old Testament required a sacrifice. So even when you and I sin in ignorance, it doesn't let us off the hook. We still are responsible to repent and to find forgiveness and cleansing from God for those sins. Once God gives us the light and the understanding of what we have done. So even sins of ignorance require repentance, which is the next part of Peter's message. You acted in ignorance, and this is how God fulfilled what he had already foretold, but verse 19, repent then, repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This was the first word Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. What shall we do? Repent. Very first word out of his mouth. Here it is again. Repent and turn. I shared on Sunday in our church, God has given me a new definition for repentance. It's very simple. We can go through the Greek and Hebrew and try to understand the depth of meaning, but sometimes we lose the power of the word in all of that. Repent means stop sinning. That's what it means. Stop sinning. So, he's basically saying, you guys up until right now, whether you did it in ignorance or not doesn't matter, you're sinners. You sinned. You betrayed Jesus Christ. You handed him over to Pilate. You killed the author of life. You're sinners. Now, the solution for you is to stop sinning and turn. Some Bibles say, be converted. That's one of the meanings of the word. Stop sinning and 
Turn to God. You've been going in the wrong direction. Turn your life around. Start moving toward God so that your sins may be wiped out. doesn't matter whether they were done in ignorance or not. They still need to be wiped out. Repent and turn to God. Stop doing the things you were doing. Turn to God so that your sins can be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Let me read verse 19 to you from the Amplified Version. So repent, change your mind and purpose, turn around and return to God, that your sins may be erased, blotted out, and wiped clean that times of refreshing, of recovering from the effects of heat, of reviving with fresh air, may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance and turning to God are always the first steps. There's no shortcut. we got to stop what we were doing, and turn. It's a complete change of mind, a complete change of attitude, a complete change of direction. It's a radical change. Stop sinning. Run to God. Seek God. Turn to God. Believe in God with your whole heart. And then something will happen. Your sins will be wiped out. This word wiped out comes from a Greek word which literally means to blot out or to erase. Another meaning is to obliterate. I think you get the message. Whatever sins you were guilty of, God wipes the whole slate clean. You know, in this age of computers and, and so forth, I think it's easy for a lot of people to understand when you have a lot of data stored on a hard drive, it's in the memory. It's there. It can be accessed. You can pull it back up onto the screen for everybody to see. But when that hard drive is completely blotted out, and the data is truly gone forever, it can't be recovered. That's what God did with all of the data concerning your sins and mine when we come to Jesus Christ. The power of the blood is so strong that it blots out, erases, and obliterates even the memory of our sins. The good news of the gospel states, Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Even the memory of them is blotted out in God's mind. Now, I can't fully comprehend that because God knows everything. But somehow, mysteriously and miraculously, God can even blot out from his own memory your sins and mine, when we truly repent 
and we turn to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It also says, when you repent, and when you're really converted, we were talking about this on Sunday, a lot of people think they're saved, but I don't think they are. Because salvation is a radical change. When you get converted, your whole life is radically changed. The whole direction, purpose, thought, life, attitudes, everything, your desires, everything in your life is completely changed. You become a new creation. Old things are wiped out and everything becomes new. Well, something else happens. When you are truly born again, when you truly repent and you get converted, your sins are wiped out, and it literally reads, and I don't know why the NIV leaves out some of these important words, but it does. It should read that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. NIV says that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Well, that's okay, but in the original Greek, it specifically says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Matter of fact, the word in Greek is prosopon, which means face. And it is thusly translated in the New King James Version, times of refreshing will come from the face of the Lord. You're going to come into a face-to-face -face relationship in God's presence when you truly repent and turn to Him. And when you turn to Him, refreshing is going to come into your life. Reviving is going to come into your life in His presence. Now, in Isaiah 59.2, we read, it's your iniquities that have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. So, the very thing that once hid God's face from our view, our sins, when those sins are blotted out, guess what? We're back face-to-face -face with God. And from the face of God, from the presence of God, there comes refreshing. So just as sin hides God's face from us, repentance causes Him to turn His face toward us once again. I don't know about you, I don't want God's face hidden from me. I can't live without God's presence. There are a lot of things that I think we can live without, but one thing we cannot live without is a face-to-face -face relationship with God. And the only thing that can interrupt that, that can interfere with that, is sin. And the only solution is repentance. Stop the sin and turn back to God. Turn back to God so that your sins may be blotted out, erased, obliterated, buried in the sea of His forgetfulness. Now, it says, 
refreshing will come. Refreshing will come from his presence. That word, as we saw in the Amplified translation, uh, which is pretty good, that word literally means a recovery of breath. (laughs) A recovery of breath or a revival. Let me read the Amplified again. So repent, that your sins may be erased, that times of refreshing, of recovering from the effects of heat, or of reviving with fresh air. God is going to bring fresh air back into, <clears throat> excuse me, back into our spiritual lungs when we repent. There's a reviving, there's a a breath of fresh air from heaven that comes back into our spirit. We get filled with the Holy Spirit again. We begin to praise God. We begin to feel His power and His anointing once again. Hallelujah. Fresh air is coming into my life. I'm getting revived again. I'm not dead. I'm not dried up. I'm not dying. I'm coming alive again. God's Word is alive in me again. His praise is bubbling up again within me. Oh, how the church needs revival, my friends. And revival doesn't come by going to some revival meeting. Revival comes through repentance and cleansing of sin. You can go to a hundred different revival meetings. You can listen to the greatest preachers, prophets, evangelists, and apostles and still be a dead duck until you decide to repent and turn back to God and say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me of my sin, forgive me for my pride, my selfishness, my anger, my uncleanness, and you can fill in the blanks. Repent and be converted, and times of refreshing will return. Verses 20 to 21 are very interesting. Then Peter says this, that he, that's God the Father, may send the Christ, that's Jesus, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Now, Peter is stating a fact here. Jesus is no longer on earth. He actually saw him ascend back into heaven. And so he knows firsthand where Jesus is now. He's in heaven. But he goes beyond that and states, he must remain there. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Here again, as we saw in Peter's first sermon, he points us back to the Old Testament prophets. The church is founded on apostles and prophets. There are two ways of interpreting that second part. It's founded on the prophetic teachings, predictions, and warnings from the Old Testament prophets, 
as well as New Testament prophets that are raised up by the Holy Spirit for the church. But he's very clear here. Jesus will remain in heaven until he comes again. He will come again. We already saw that in Acts 1. But Peter adds some important details here. When Jesus comes again, his ultimate plan and purpose is to fulfill prophecy made in the Old Testament where God has already stated he's going to restore all things. He's going to restore all things. That word restore comes from a Greek word which means reconstitution or restitution of all things. All things are going to be reconstituted. They're going to be restored. Now, there are prophecies in Isaiah that talk about God's promise of eventually restoring a new earth and a new heaven. And the same Peter, in his second epistle, he points to that. Let me read from Second Peter 3, verses 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So, this word that Peter used in Acts 3, to restore or restoration, it's right on. It's the exact word, and literally, as I mentioned, it means reconstitution. And Peter explains that here in his second epistle. Two things are going to happen. First of all, the original creation as we know it will be destroyed. He says the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Everything will be destroyed. And then he adds a little side note. If you believe that, why do you still run after the stuff of the world? It's all going to be burned up. And that's what he says. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to this day, the day of God, and speed its coming. Then he reiterates, that day will bring about 
the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. All our gold, all our silver, all our houses, all our cars, all of our stuff is going to burn up. But, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a restored heaven, a restored earth. John saw a little bit more on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 21.1. He also saw a new heaven, he saw a new earth, and he also saw a new Jerusalem. Listen to Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. There's a day of reconstitution that is coming. A day of restoration when all of the old will be done away with and everything is going to be made new. A new earth, a new heaven, and a new Jerusalem. The next thing Peter does in his sermon, he continues to focus on the Old Testament prophets and how their prophecies point to Jesus and are being fulfilled in Jesus. Back to Acts 3. He said in verse 21, He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. You can look those up on your own, primarily through Isaiah, but others also speak about this. Then in verse 22, For Moses said, and he's quoting, we'll look at the exact quote in a moment, it's from Deuteronomy 18, for Moses said, and he quotes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own people. Meaning, he'll be a Jew, like you. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Now, Let's read the original scripture in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses is speaking to the Jewish people, and here's what he says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, not me, but like me, from among your own brothers. This will be a Jewish prophet. You must listen to him. Well, here comes Peter, and he says, I'm going to now announce to you who Moses was talking about. We're now going to put a name on this prophet. His name is Jesus. Moses was prophesying about Jesus. Peter boldly stated, Jesus is the prophet that Moses was speaking about. All these Jews knew Deuteronomy 18. They knew that Moses had predicted a coming prophet like himself 
that would arise from the Jewish people, and that when he did come, they needed to pay close attention to whatever he had to say. Well, Peter removes any mystery. He says, that prophet has come. It's the one you killed. God raised him back to life. His name is Jesus, and it's in his name that this crippled man was just healed miraculously. And Peter adds a few more words as he's quoting this. Let me read the way Peter quotes it again. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. The original prophecy was you must listen to him. Peter expands that a little bit. You must listen to everything he tells you. Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, also the writer of the gospel that bears his name, he alone records for us in chapter 24 how after his resurrection, Jesus opened the eyes of the disciples and he took them right through the scriptures, starting with Moses, then he went into the prophets and into the Psalms, and showed them all of the scriptures that were speaking about himself. I can only speculate, but it would be very likely that one of the scriptures Jesus pointed to was Deuteronomy 18.15, basically saying, I am the prophet that Moses said was going to come along. And then, Peter continues in this vein, talking about the Old Testament prophets. Remember, he did that on the day of Pentecost. He pointed to the prophet Joel. He quoted the prophet David. Some people don't often think of David as a prophet, but he's referred to as a prophet in Acts chapter 2. He prophesied concerning the Messiah many, many times. And here again... Peter is falling back on Old Testament prophets and their prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Acts 3 from 24. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. Listen to that. All the prophets have foretold these days. They were all talking about Jesus. They were all pointing to the church age, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the raising up of the church, the kingdom of God. Verse 25, And you are heirs of the prophets, and of the covenant God made with your fathers. And he reminds them of that covenant. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. So, he doesn't go into a lot of detail, but I think he stimulated many in the crowd that day to get back into the scriptures and start searching what all of the prophets had to say. Because He says, all of the prophets... 
have been talking about these days. They've been foretelling the days of Christ, the days that we are presently in. And prophecy after prophecy was now being fulfilled. And as I mentioned, um, in Luke 24, we're, we're not given the details, but many, many things that Moses and the prophets wrote about were actually pointing to Jesus Christ. It says in Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's powerful. Concerning himself. Man, I would love to have been in on that Bible study. I have no doubt Jesus took them through Exodus 12, and he read to them about the Passover, and then he said, I am the Passover lamb. Maybe he even took them through the book of Exodus, speaking about the tabernacle, and said, I am the tabernacle. I am the sacrifice. I am the door into the presence of God. Finally, Peter ends this whole thing with these words. Verse 26. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first, key word, first to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. First to you. There's an order in the way God works. And it was followed very carefully here. Peter understood it. There's going to be an order. First for the Jews, later on to the Gentiles. But because of God's covenant with Abraham, because of his promised blessing to Abraham, which he quoted in verse 25, therefore the message of salvation must first be brought to the house of Israel by raising Christ from the dead and turning them from their wicked ways. In the message translation, verse 26 says this, But you are first in line. God, having raised up his Son, sent him to bless you as you turn one by one from your evil ways. So, the order is very clear when we come to the writings of Paul. In Romans 1, verse 16, listen carefully to what Paul says here. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God, for the salvation of everyone who believes. Ah, but he goes on. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Salvation's for everyone, but there's an order. It will first be offered to the Jewish people, then to the Gentiles. He expands on this greatly when you come to chapter 11 of Romans, 
where he gives this picture of the olive tree. And we don't have time to go into all the details, but he gives an extensive explanation of God's plan. God's plan was first taken to the Jews. And he refers to the Jews as the natural branches in the olive tree. But because they rejected, by and large, the Messiah, those natural branches were then broken off, and wild branches representing the Gentiles would later be grafted in. So there's an order. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That's why Peter says he's been sent first to bless you, not automatically, but by turning each of you from your wicked ways. They still need to repent. They still need to turn to God and put their faith in Christ, but they are given the first shot. Or as the Message Bible says, you're first in line. God's going to give you the first opportunity. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. John chapter 4. When Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, in verse 22, he says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Or, some Bibles translate it, salvation is of the Jews or for the Jews. However you read it, it's the same. Salvation first offered to the Jews. And... Later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see this over and over, not by accident or coincidence, it was a deliberate pattern that the apostles followed, because they understood this was God's plan. We're going to see over and over, when the apostles begin to move out from Jerusalem, from Judea and Samaria, and they begin to go out into the Gentile world, even then, When they came to a new city, they would always first take the gospel to the synagogue in that city, giving the Jews the first opportunity to hear the message of Christ. Let's look at these, and then we're going to end for for this session. Acts 13, verse 14. It says, From Perga. They went on to Pisidian Antioch. They're now in the Gentile world. On the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue. Remember, Jews have been scattered all throughout the earth. So wherever they went, they were going to look for the synagogue first. And so, on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Verse 44, On the next Sabbath, Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Where? They're back in the synagogue. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. There's that word, first. We had to speak the word of God to you first, explaining why they first went to the synagogue. But, since you reject it, 
and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So the Jews were first given the opportunity in every city to hear the gospel. When they rejected the message, then they shook the dust off their feet and went on to the Gentiles. Acts 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual, listen to those words, they went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. So this was their custom. Whenever they went into a new city, first go to the Jews, first go to the synagogue. Acts 17, verses 1 and 2. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So, very clearly, there's this pattern throughout the New Testament. Salvation was first offered to the Jews, then it's taken to the Gentiles. Okay, so summarizing, a great miracle takes place here at the Gate Beautiful. Crippled man is instantly, miraculously healed. It creates quite a stir. It gathers a crowd. Peter uses that opportunity as a platform to preach Christ to them. He doesn't mince words. He uses the sharp sword of God's word. And the Holy Spirit, no, no doubt, brought conviction again into their hearts as he reminded them, you are the ones that said, crucify him, crucify him. You disowned the Holy One. You rejected your own Messiah, the prophet that Moses had spoken of. You handed him over to Pilate. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And there's still hope. You can repent. You can turn to God, and even now, all of your sins can be wiped out. Times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. And there's even a greater hope. Jesus has now gone back into heaven, but his work is not done yet. He will be sent again to restore or to reconstitute all things. There's the promise. There's the hope of a new earth, a new heaven, and a new Jerusalem. Praise God. We'll end for there, and we're going to see next time, immediately another stir takes place. A stir of anger, hatred, jealousy, and Peter and John find themselves in prison. More about that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bring healing, to bring salvation, to bring hope. There's salvation in no other name. 
There's true healing in no other name. We thank you that it doesn't depend on us. It's not our power or our godliness, but it's in the name of Jesus Christ that salvation and healing is available. Lord, I pray tonight that each and every one of us might truly experience what Peter urged the people in this crowd to do, to repent and be converted, to turn to God for a radical change in their life, that their sins could be erased, blotted out, and that times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord might come into their lives. God, I pray for everyone listening to my voice tonight or perhaps in the future through some means, recording, online, or whatever. I pray that every one of us would experience the face of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, this reviving and refreshing that comes from sins being blotted out and fellowship with God being restored and renewed. God bless each and every one tonight. Keep us in your presence. Keep us living and walking in your presence all the days of our lives as we look forward to the day of God and to the restoration of all things.